The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Gregory Daco, uh, who has got some interesting thoughts when it comes to inflation. Been looking at his feed. I think uh, no one better to talk about some of the news today and maybe market reaction. But Greg, uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved, interested in economics and markets? And what are you doing for me? So uh, I currently am uh, chief economist at EY. Uh, I lead the uh, economic research team uh, at EY. Uh, we produce uh, original insights on the, the macro economy, and I spend a lot of time uh, having discussions with business executives around the, the macroeconomic outlook, how that influences their business decisions. We know that you know, we've been in a multi-speed global economy over the last few months, and there are a lot of questions as to how that particular uh, and unique business cycle is influencing business decisions. Prior to joining UI, I was uh, chief economist at Oxford Economics. It's a macro uh, consulting uh, company. And uh, prior to that, worked at uh, IHS or the, the company that was acquired by IHS, uh, which is Global Insights uh, back in the days. I want you to further tease out that point about a multi-speed economy, because I'm going to argue that it's not just a multi-speed economy, it's a multi-speed market. I mean, you've got large cap tech in particular looking very different than small caps, looking very different than the typical uh, average stock. Has there ever been a, a time in, in history where Seemingly, there were so many disconnects where it's not like it's everything moving in a monolithic type of way. Yeah, I think we we, we had been accustomed to an environment uh, where things were generally moving in the same direction uh, when it came to the global economies around the world and, and even different sectors. And, you know, that period that preceded the, the COVID pandemic, the, the 10 years between the financial crisis and the pandemic were an environment where we generally saw um, this this fairly homogeneous movement across sectors and across economies around the world. And then we had this, this sudden stop uh, to both demand and supply uh, from the, the pandemic, from the, the COVID crisis. And in the wake of that, because we had this significant mismatch between supply and demand, we've had unprecedented inflationary pressures, which led central banks around the world to tighten very aggressively. And countries to reopen at their own speed. Uh, and so we're left with you know, this, this environment where it's, you're correct, it's not just a multi-speed global economy in the sense that some economies are accelerating, some are decelerating, some are stagnating. 
But it's really that within each of these economies and across sectors, you're seeing an environment um, that some have described as a you know this rolling recession environment where some sectors are, are experiencing recession one after the other, um, and others are, are doing relatively well. We've also been hearing about the, the poly crisis type of environment where uh, you're seeing crises across different segments. I prefer the multi-speed analogy uh, because it's really not just about you know, downside risks. I think there are some significant opportunities here uh, in this, uh, this type of environment. Multi-speed also sounds confusing, right? So uh, talk about from a, like kind of an eco- econometric uh, modeling perspective. Um, how do you guys think through the fact that everything's moving at these different rates of change? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's uh, an environment in which you're not necessarily everything is not moving in the same direction. And you could look at at inflation, for instance. Uh, you know, we we had been in an environment where essentially most of the world, uh, both advanced economies and emerging markets, were experiencing an environment of uh, accelerating inflation. So prices were rising, but they were rising at a faster and faster pace. And so there was this fear of prices spiraling out of, of control. And once we we essentially got past that initial wave of inflation uh, across the world, uh, we started to see central banks tighten monetary policy and in most cases tighten very aggressively. Um, and now we're, we're in this very different environment where it's not just about inflationary dynamics and inflation accelerating, but it's the fact that we're past, in most economies around the world, we're past peak inflation. But in some economies, we're seeing more stickiness, more persistence in inflation. So prices are still rising at a fairly rapid clip in in a lot of economies around the world. In other places and in other sectors, you're seeing prices rise, but at a slower pace. You can think of uh, the goods segment, for instance, as a good indicator of that. And then you have other sectors that are seeing uh, price dynamics actually move in the other direction you're seeing, so-called deflation, where prices are falling. Um, and that makes it very difficult to navigate this, this type of environment and to forecast. Um, it's not just about looking back at what has happened over the past few months, but really anticipate what's likely to come ahead for economies around the world, for different sectors, but perhaps more importantly, for business leaders, um, as they try to navigate this environment, both business leaders and investors, they want to have some sense of understanding as to the, the appropriate direction of the economy. And in this, this highly volatile and highly ununified or heterogeneous environment, it's very difficult to, to do such forecasts. What do you think it would take for things to kind of sync up more properly to history? Is it just as simple as get back to you know some kind of 2% inflation rate? or do you almost need to have, for lack of a better way of saying it, it's kind of a, a an event because in high volatility, everything tends to kind of correlate the same way? Yeah. Um, well, I think there would need to be uh, some sense of, of stabilization when it comes to monetary policy in particular. So we've, we've seen that central banks are laser focused on getting inflation back down towards their targets and, and their targets are divergent and inflation dynamics are very different across across different uh, places around the world. Once we are back in an environment where inflationary dynamics are actually no longer a subject of conversation, 
when inflation takes back its secondary role, as it was pre-pandemic, then central banks will have the flexibility and the leisure to ease up and recalibrate their policy stance to the downside. And we will likely be in an environment where there is less divergence in terms of the credit impulse, in terms of the economic impulse. I think if you, you think about it you know, more broadly, we're still going to be riding the waves, the post-pandemic waves, in a sense, the ripple waves from this massive shock. Um, I think we tend to underestimate how significant this shock was to the system. It was a warlike type of shock where everybody you know, shut down, essentially, from, from the, 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 the consumer to the producer to the, the investors. Everybody essentially shut down for a couple of months, and then things started to, to reopen. The problem is that you don't restart a global economy as easily as you shut it down with this, this pandemic. And so the, the ripples and the waves are likely to, to remain in place for, for some time. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised that we see more volatility, in a sense, in economic data going forward than we had been seeing in this period that was dubbed the, the Great Moderation um, over the last, uh, last 30, 40 years. So I shared at the top of the Twitter space in the nest um, a very well-formed uh, tweet around uh, the breakdown on CPI, and you put a hashtag mm-hmm. culprits around used cars. I saw it you know, on the mm-hmm. periphery, um, and I've been on calls all day long here today, but break down for the audience <laughs> that tweet. And you know, uh, other than used cars, and we'll get into used cars in a bit here, but other than used cars, were there any other surprises or things that uh, you think people should focus on? Well, yeah, I mean, I, when I, I was looking at the, uh, the CPI report, the first you know, reaction was, well, this is a, a fairly hot and sticky uh, reading in terms of, of CPI. Uh, you had you know, both headline and core rising 0.4 on the, the month. And you know, just as a side note, uh, increasingly what will matter is the sequential momentum, not so much the year-over-year pace of, of inflation which will be declining because of, of base effects and because we're also riding a strong wave of lower energy prices. But the point I was making in, in, uh, in the tweet is that if you look at the composition of the, the increase in prices in April, um, it's actually quite reassuring because the used car prices component surged 4.4%. And the contribution of that alone to the headline print and the core print was around a tenth. And if you look at the core commodities indicator, sub-indicator, that rose 0.6%, which was the strongest rise in, in, in more than a year, all of that came from used car prices. All the other indicators are showing less significant increases or in some cases, decreases. New car prices are still decreasing. Apparel prices are rising at a slower pace. Food prices have been flat in the last couple of months. This is the first time since before the pandemic that we've seen that. And then service prices, the service sector that the Fed is so focused on, the core service sector, which is essentially services excluding shelter and energy, um, those posted the slowest gain in in a year. Uh, So we're looking at dynamics that are disinflationary, quite strongly so. And even the housing sector, shelter costs, uh, when you look at rent prices and at uh, owner's equivalent rent, which are two of the key subcomponents in the shelter cost, those are also showing signs that they're rising, but at a slower pace. 
So that's the type of dynamic that you really want to be seeing when it comes to the inflation outlook, so moderating inflation, but also when it comes to monetary policy, because we've seen the Fed maintain a very, if not extremely or excessively data-dependent approach. Um, and these types of readings point to moderating inflation, which, if anything, will likely keep the Fed on pause at this stage. And if we continue to see these types of readings, will likely lead it to consider going forward the possibility of recalibrating policy to the downside. Maybe not this year, but early next year. Yeah, I like that that way you framed around bumpy disinflation. But you and I both know that interest rates act with a lag. And you know, I made that point earlier today in a in a tweet. You know, CPI today is based on interest rates from many months ago. Who knows exactly how many months ago, right? Because it's not always a consistent type of thing. But do you get a sense that uh, is there anything in your work that would suggest the Fed maybe has already over tightened in the sense that yeah okay you've got strong disinflation starting or really kind of accelerating uh, but you haven't yet had the full impact of the prior rate rises i, I think certainly i i've been advocating for less of a, a backward looking uh, approach when it comes to policy making uh, i think there's been a lack of firm anchors when it comes to policy making at the fed fed we know was caught you know somewhat off guard uh, in terms of, of its policy when it came to the persistence of inflationary dynamics. And it reacted by going very aggressive in terms of its tightening cycle. This was the, the, tight, the fastest tightening cycle that we had seen since the Paul Volcker era uh, back in the late 1980s. So a very rapid and aggressive uh, tightening stance. But as you say, um, there is a lot of uncertainty as to the effects of this tightening of monetary policy on economic aggregates. If we're just focused on the backward-looking data, on April inflation data, which likely reflects February to March uh, spending impetus, then that is essentially going to lead us into the wrong types of, of decisions when it comes to the ideal, the optimal monetary policy environment. Um, so I, I've been advocating for a pause. Um, I think that at this stage, monetary policy is tight enough. Inflationary dynamics are indicating that there is a significant cool down underway, that this process is not just about to end, that it will continue um, and may actually, this is my view, actually surprise on the downside, that we may actually end up in a more rapid disinflationary environment than is currently anticipated by the consensus. I fear there's a little bit of a recency bias whereby people anticipate that the inflation stickiness that we've seen over the past 18 months is likely to persist. But if anything, just to come back to the most recent data we have, if anything, it shows that whether it's hotel prices, airfare, or just in broad terms, the leisure and hospitality sector, those are starting to see some turnarounds in the prices on a month-to-month -month basis. Why? Because demand is cooling. Even though there are people that still have the means to spend, and even though there is still that narrative of people enjoying the services that they couldn't enjoy during COVID, um, that narrative, I think, is increasingly going to be misguided when you look forward. 
because prices are very high and price levels in the end are what matter for the average Joe, not inflation, which matters for, for me and for you and for those that have a little bit more insights into what inflation is. Well, and I, I think the, the market expectations seem to agree with you know your view on that. There does seem to be a pretty remarkable difference in in belief, right? The Fed doesn't is seemingly does is saying, well, we may not be done, and we're not planning on lowering rates at any point this year. While uh, I think Fed futures are expecting what three cuts, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah, and definitely. Tweet yeah. about that. Has there has there ever been anything that you've looked at where you've seen that much disagreement between what the Fed is saying and what the market's pricing on? Not in res- recent history, to be honest. I mean, there, there certainly have been periods of, of significant disconnect uh, between market pricing and, and, and Fed, what the Fed message or the Fed communication is. But this pr- is proving to be quite persistent. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right to highlight the fact that the Fed has been hammering this message that there will not be rate cuts in 2023. And markets have continued to price rate cuts, about 75 basis points worth of rate cuts over the course of, of the back half of this year, with the first rate cut coming in September. So that's pretty close to where we, we currently are. There are a couple of, of, of notable um, things to, to highlight when it comes to this disconnect, because it goes back to this lack of a proper anchor for the Fed in terms of, of monetary policy. In the past, the Fed was able to essentially disregard, to some extent, its price stability mandate, right? Focus on the employment mandate and focus on financial stability, which is the often forgotten third leg of its, its mandate. And we saw that in the wake of this very long expansion, this very long business cycle that lasted from the end of the financial crisis to the pandemic, essentially the Fed realized that it had been too focused still on the inflation element of the mandate and not allowing the economy to really run hot to reach a higher level of broad-based employment. And so it changed its framework to adapt to um, you know, this rear-view mirror of the economy uh, that was that had a lot more potential and could have had more potential had it not tightened as much as it did uh, from 2015 to 2019. Now, that framework is not well suited at all for the, the post-pandemic era where we've had this inflationary environment and where that inflationary environment has been quite sticky. Now we come to this, this big question for the Fed, which is, what does it want to anchor its policy framework on? And how does it want to communicate its intent to lead monetary policy coming out of this um, period of, of very strong and persistent inflation? And that's where the credibility issue comes into play. At one point, the disconnect between what the markets are anticipating and what the Fed is saying will have to be reconciled. And one of two things will happen. Either there will be a market repricing and therefore much more volatility coming forth in terms of, of expectations uh, for the Fed to, to not cut rates, or the Fed will succumb uh, to market expectations. And by cutting rates in 2023, it will essentially lose a lot of credibility in terms of its own anchoring of monetary policy. I'm fearful that extreme data dependence in this very volatile environment that we've been describing is a very risky proposition for the Fed 
um, and something that it will need to address very rapidly. Because as I was saying, it cannot no longer just focus on the financial stability aspect of, of things, but it has to focus on its triple mandate of ensuring inflation comes back down towards its target, so price stability, ensuring that it moves towards an environment that is still robust on the employment front, and ensuring that there is financial stability. That is a very difficult mission for the Fed in the current environment. Speaking of financial stability, I think that's a good transition around uh, the debt ceiling. Uh, <laughs> I did a Twitter space with Jeffrey Hirsch of Stock Traders Almanac mm -hmm. yesterday, and he, he had noticed, I've been seeing this on the periphery, but it's actually pretty remarkable. If you look at the credit default swaps yeah. on uh, on the U.S., right, you're reaching like 2008, 2009 levels. It's actually past the 2011 you know, debacle back then and summer crash because of the debt downgrade. Is that just some uh, some institution that's trying to play a, a black swan type of insurance bet? Or is there some validity to uh, maybe this time it's a little bit different the way the rhetoric is, is playing out? I'm, I'm concerned. To be, to be honest, I'm, I'm concerned about the way things have been evolving. You know, there, there were really four potential scenarios that could have unfolded uh, when it comes to, to the debt ceiling debacle. Um, number one was a, a clean increase in the debt ceiling that has happened in the past. Uh, unfortunately, given the, the landscape in D.C., that, that's not going to be the case. Um, the second option is what I still think and secretly hope is most likely is essentially this negotiated outcome uh, whereby um, Congress gets uh, together and essentially says we will most likely suspend, I would think, the debt ceiling and uh, tie to that some form of agreement to reduce spending in the next budget. I wouldn't be surprised that the outcome ends up being pushing back the deadline to, let's call it September or, or, or end of the summer, and essentially tying that to an obligation uh, to cut essentially spending, very similar to the type of super committee outcome that we had back in 2011, which led to this so-called Budget Control Act, which essentially capped spending, uh, both on the defense and, and non-defense front, by the way. Um, so that's the second option. The third option, which is increasingly, you know, likely is essentially some form of executive action. So we've talked a lot about the president's ability to invoke the 14th Amendment of the, the Constitution and saying that the, the validity of the debt shall not be questioned, um, in a sense, authorizing Treasury to pay its prior debts. Um, and then the, the fourth option is essentially a default. And, and that's the catastrophic one, right? That's the one where you end up in a situation um, that not only leads to a significant economic downturn, because you would have to cut government outlays to be equal to government revenues, which means cutting about 4.5% of GDP, but you will also have, as you were just highlighting, a tremendous amount of financial market stress. Volatility surging, stock prices falling, private sector confidence dropping, the dollar uh, collapsing, and potentially some further stress on the, the treasury. Uh, market front. So that type of situation is really what everyone should aim to avoid because that is the most catastrophic type of outcome. But the other two that are still likely, the negotiated outcome and the, the executive action, those are not without pain and they will also 
likely be quite problematic, um, both in the short run, but also potentially in the long run. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I will say that's one way to quickly get to 2% inflation <laughs> is if you were to have an actual default. I keep going back to, you know, if you're going to go back to a long-run average of 2%, you need a period of deflation. Mm-hmm. And you get any kind of credit events that would do it. Now, that would be a hell of a credit event, even if it's, you know, sort of a, a mini default in terms of extending out or however they do it, right? Technical default, so to speak. And that would be enough to shake confidence in all credit issues. I mean, I mean, to, to, to your point, a, a type, you know, a, a, this type of, of shock to the system would not just get inflation back down to 2%, but could lead to a severe deflationary environment. Um, because, you know, just to give people a, a, a sense of context here in terms of, of what this means on, on the economic front, when you cut spending to be equal to, to revenues, federal spending to be equal to federal revenues, you're cutting the amount of the federal deficit, budget, federal budget deficit, which is currently around 4 to 4.5% four of GDP. That's in nominal terms. If you adjust for prices, you're looking at 35 to 4% uh, in terms of the real GDP shock. Now, how does that compare in terms of prior recessions? Well, Take a look at the financial uh, crisis back in 08, 09. The shock was about 3.5% of, of real GDP. The peak to trough decline during the COVID crisis was about 10%. So that gives you an order of magnitude of how severe the hit to the economy would be. And as I mentioned, it's not just about the economics of it, it's also the financial market ramifications. So if you have a significant tightening of financial conditions and potentially global financial ramifications, global financial conditions tightening as well, then the combination of all those factors would likely lead to an even greater hit in terms of economic activity. And there's no real process through which you could really prioritize payments. There is a different system of payments for interests on the debt, and I think Treasury would like to promote that and and, and ensure that interest payments on the debt are are guaranteed. Um, But other payments are by no means guaranteed. So do you go chronologically? Do you try to sort out through the millions of payments that go out on a, a daily basis? How do you proceed in doing that? And how do you avoid a shock to the most sensitive parts of of, of our economy uh, via Medicaid payments, delays, Medicare, um, Social Security, vet- veterans payments, and all those types of payments that populations uh, depend on across the, the U.S. So if you have that type of shock, it's not just a disinflationary effect. It's a deflationary uh, shock that occurs under that type of, of environment. And and this is all tied into, into the Fed, right? It's no surprise that there were questions for, for Jay Powell at the last press conference around 
what the Fed, how the Fed would, would act in this type of environment. There is the possibility of the Fed buying treasuries uh, to essentially ensure that uh, we don't end up in a, uh, an unfortunate financial situation, but that's not guaranteed. And you know, again and again, the message comes back that Congress needs to act. The debt ceiling is not something that is should be played with. Uh, it's not useful. <laughs> and the debt ceiling in itself, in and of itself, should probably um, uh, eliminate it altogether. But we have it today and we have to deal with it today. As you were talking, I was just going to chat GPT to see what it thought about prioritizing payments. And the response I got was, well, we're all fucked. So uh, I don't think that's going to be possible. All this stress that we're seeing in the economy, in uh, in terms of, of the policy situation, and in terms of the banking sector stress that we've seen over the past few uh, few weeks, few couple of months, um, is is all interrelated. And so we have to be conscious of the fact that a a shock to the system at this stage in the business cycle could be quite problematic. Um, there's still you know, uncertainty as to whether the economy will go through or live through uh, an outright uh, recession. Um, I think the odds favor recession, but you know there's still some some uncertainty as to, to that outcome. But all of this stress that is being added to the system, including what I've called the unknown unknowns, increases the odds that we end up in a significant contractionary type of environment. Um, the unknown unknowns are what I'm most fearful of. And, and you can't describe it. You don't know what they are. But if we look back at the last six months, we look at what happened with pension funds that were having to make margin calls and the stress that was present in the, the UK economy when the trust uh, administration released a, a non-believable budget uh, and led to significant uh, stress in, in the pension fund system and forced the Bank of England to intervene and do a major U-turn when it came to buying gilts, that shock, or the collapse of, of uh, SVB and other institutions in the last few weeks that were really not foreseen uh, up until the very day they occurred, those types of developments indicate how there are fragilities in a system where the private sector has yet to fully adapt to a very high likelihood that we're likely to stay in an environment where the cost of capital will remain much higher than it was pre-pandemic. Doesn't mean it might not fall um, slightly over the, the coming months, but it means it will be higher and remain higher than it was uh, pre-pandemic. And that adjustment means that it's going to, 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 to take more time before we have less volatility to, to your earlier question around volatility. So it's it's uh, it's it's the intermingling, uh, and and the fact that all these stress and all these uh, risks are intertwined that is that is uh, concerning me the most. First, we have to understand you know what the the current situation is likely lead, to lead to. I don't think that we are going to be in an environment where you know there is any form of balanced budget going forward. Yes, if we hit the, the debt ceiling itself by definition, essentially uh, outlays have to equal revenues. But I would imagine that the stress would be so great that there would be very rapid, a very rapid policy reaction 
to avoid what would essentially be a self-inflicted recession by the largest economy in the world. Um, that would be, you know, in my in my sense, the most likely outcome. What's likely to happen going forward, though, as I mentioned, is this idea that we will likely see Congress pass some form of budget that is more strained in terms of future deficits. So essentially, it's not so much that the, the that Congress would pass, you know, a ten-year budget that would have a balanced debt or, or no deficit essentially over the next ten years, but instead that it would cap the potential increase in the deficit and the debt going forward. Not so much that it would cap both of, of these. So, in doing so, um, that has implications because it means uh, less. Uh, emissions uh, in terms, uh, sorry, less growth uh, because it, it's it's restrictive in terms of, of growth momentum, but also less accumulation of debt, and then therefore less need to finance uh, their their treasuries uh, in terms of of, of financing the, um, the 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 bonds that that it emits. So that that's the type of trade off we're looking at. We're not really looking at uh, a sudden essentially disappearance of the, the U.S. debt. The U.S. will likely forever have elevated uh, debt, um, and it will likely, for the foreseeable future, continue to run uh, a deficit, um, import more than in exports, although on the energy front, that has started to shift, especially with um, natural gas exports having surged in the last uh, last year. But that's the, the type of dynamic. I don't foresee a complete shift of, of the U.S. economy away from uh, a, a deficit nation. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Um, I feel like we need to hit on the ECB a bit, especially given what looks like a quickly decelerating Germany. Um, What are your thoughts on monetary policy from Lagarde? And is the Fed factoring in at all where the ECB is at because, you know, the cross currents of currency? Well, I think the ECB is in a different situation and has been in a different situation because of the different um, nature of, of inflationary dynamics. You know, just to, to do a little bit of a flashback, U.S. inflation was has always been essentially broad-based, uh, right? The acceleration in inflation wasn't just one segment of the economy seeing higher prices. Um, it was, of course, sparked by the goods segment. Uh, we were seeing strains in supply chains around the world that was putting upward pressure on prices and costs uh, that were being passed on to consumers. But it very rapidly broadened out to energy, food, services, housing. It's essentially inflation across all different segments of of the U.S. economy. The European picture was somewhat different, uh, where the supply side, and in particular um, goods and energy, were the largest drivers of the acceleration in inflation. But 
now that we're past this this peak impetus in terms of, of energy price inflation and goods price inflation in Europe, what we've started to see is the unfortunate lagged effect uh, that comes via wages and indexation of wages, uh, because a number of economies in the eurozone have uh, the system of indexed wages, which is often based on prior inflation. And what that does is it essentially creates an environment where inflation permeates into the future via this indexation of wages. If you think about it from a basic uh, standpoint, you have an environment where inflation, let's call it, was 10% to give you a round number in the prior year, uh, then you're going to see wages being indexed at a, a relative level compared to that 10% going forward. What that means for business leaders and business executives is that they then have this lagged impact on their costs, on their labor costs, which they then have to either take the bite for or pass on or increase productivity. We can talk about productivity because I think that's one of the most important elements in, in this business cycle. But usually it's going to be either they take the hit in terms of their bottom lines or they actually pass them on to consumers. If they do the latter, then that creates an environment of more persistence, more sticky inflation. And that is unfortunately the situation that we're facing right now when it comes to, to Europe. So Lagarde is in this environment where it's seeing a notable slowdown um, in some of the more manufacturing intensive economies, Germany uh, being the, the prime example. It used to be the strong engine of growth across Europe. It's now uh, one of the laggards when it comes to economic activity. Service sector activity in Europe remains quite resilient. Still, we're still seeing um, some strong signs when it comes to the most recent uh, indicators, the most recent PMI indicators, for instance, the purchasing managers indices. Those are diffusion indices that indicate strong momentum in the services sector. And so in this environment, the ECB has also been uh, tightening monetary policy at a, a rapid clip. Uh, it's you know about 150 basis points behind uh, the Fed when it comes to the level of the policy rate at 3.5%. Um, but it has been proceeding with fairly aggressive uh, rate hikes, did 50 basis points on a few occasions, now has gone back to a 25 basis point increment at its last meeting. But Lagarde was key in, was, was, was really... Um, indicated or stressed that there was still more uh, scope for further tightening of monetary policy going forward. So the ECB, whereas the Fed is on pause, granted a hawkish pause, but on pause, and the Bank of Canada as well, and the Bank of England may be as well, the ECB is still leaning towards tightening monetary policy, perhaps with a further, let's call it 50 basis points of rate hikes uh, coming over the next uh, next couple of months. And that is really going to be reflective of this environment of a lagged pass-through of inflationary dynamics uh, that that uh, will come via the, the wage channel. That, though, of course, could keep uh, our own inflation stickier, at least for a bit of time, right? So conceivably, the ECB mm -hmm. keeps raising rates that puts upward pressure on the euro, dollar weakens, that's inflationary. It's like I joked about that before when the... Um, if you remember when I think it was November when uh, that it, inflation print CPI print, everyone was cheering it and the dollar collapsed. And I, I, I tongue in cheek said, "Well, the dollar just celebrated uh, weaker inflation by being more inflationary." 
right, in terms of the drop back mm-hmm. then. Presumably the Fed is, is going to be seeing that and mindful of interest rate differentials. It doesn't sound to me like you think that will cause them to adjust course, but that's got to be a consideration somewhat. It is a consideration, um, but I think we have to be careful with the assumption that the dollar has a major inflationary effect in, in the current environment. You know, you have to always remember that in the U.S., although we import a lot, uh, we invoice about 80%, roughly, of our imports in, in dollars. Uh, what that means is that there is no FX, no strong FX uh, effect uh, when it comes to import prices. They're still there. They're still there. Um, but they're not as strong as, as, as uh, generally believed. The other thing is that when it comes to inflationary dynamics, uh, just focusing on, the, on, on those first, we have seen that import prices are actually deflating. So they're actually, prices are falling uh, when it comes to import prices. So that's a, a, a deflationary, a disinflationary impact influence on consumer prices in, in the U.S., I think the, the interesting question when it comes to the, the, the foreign exchange effects is whether the, the Fed pause actually influences the, the ECB. <laughs> so essentially flipping your question around, um, is there an effect whereby the ECB looks at what's happening in terms of the Fed and you know, decides it need not go as high? Because contrary to the, the Fed, the inflationary pass-through from the FX side in Europe is actually quite significant. So there could be this argument that given that the euro has has strengthened vis-a-vis the dollar and that you've had the benefit of this disinflationary current over the past few months, um, and that the Fed is now on pause, there's less less of that aspect of gaining relative, well, uh, taking advantage in terms of the, the relative uh, interest spread, um, and therefore less of a need to tighten monetary policy further from an FX standpoint. I don't think that changes the dynamic in terms of what the, the ECB wants to do, but that would be essentially flipping the question to the ECB now that the Fed is is likely at uh, at its its terminal Fed funds. Yeah, and I, I think it's be more intriguing if the market's expectations are right about the Fed mm-hmm. cutting, and then good luck with the ECB trying to trying to counter exactly. that. I had uh, a couple months ago, Louis Vincent Gov of GovCal, and his argument at the time was, you're not going to have a recession because China is going to drive uh, global growth, right? That mm-hmm. that would be sort of the, the real engine this time around. Any thoughts on how China uh, and their monetary policy, their fiscal response with their own reopening is muddying things in terms of central bank action from the Fed and the ECB? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to to... to watch and observe how, how the Chinese economy has been evolving. I mean, we, we know it was the last one, the last big economy to really let go of its COVID policies. Um, and it did a major, largely unexpected, by the way, uh, U-turn when it came to, uh, to the zero COVID policy. And that has led to a, a significant uh, acceleration in economic activity. Now, the notable feature in, in China is that actually, you know, when you look at inflationary dynamics, they're, they are very weak. You're looking at PPI that is contracting. I don't have the exact figure, but I think it's, it's down about 1% to 2% on a year-over-year basis. 
And consumer prices are in the 1% to 2% range on, on the upside, but, but still very moderate uh, inflationary dynamics uh, because you've had less of that consumer impetus, less of that fiscal stimulus uh, when it came to, to economic activity. And the combination of the zero COVID policy, the property sector slump, and efforts by authorities to avoid excess leverage that really curbed economic activity. Not forget that last year, China was in a recession of its own, growing only 3% uh, when it came to, uh, to, to GDP growth. Now we've seen an acceleration in economic activity. We had growth um, at 4.5% in the first quarter. We're likely to see growth for the year closer to 5 maybe slightly above 5%. We're seeing a bifurcated economy, which is important to, to remember when it comes to international uh, flows and international the international support that China can bring to the rest of the world. Because I'm digressing a little bit, but in prior cycles, the credit impulse in China has been countercyclical, right? In the financial crisis, um, even in the early days of, of the COVID crisis, you had uh, this environment whereby there was a slowdown in global economic activity, but there was a very strong credit impulse that supported China, Chinese growth. And because Chinese growth was so import-intensive, that generated positive spillovers for the rest of the region and the rest of the world. In today's environment, where a lot of the rebound in economic activity is service-driven, it does not have zero spillovers for the rest of the world, but it means that the spillovers are very different in nature, and I think to a great degree smaller than they've been in the past. Travel and tourism is, is certainly a big part of uh, China's exports, but it's certainly nowhere near comparable to the import size and the import pull when you're thinking about infrastructure spending, when you're thinking about real estate activity, when you're talking about manufacturing activity, that pull is not as strong relative to the headline GDP print. And that means that the spillovers for the rest of the region are much less significant. And we're coming out of an environment, to go back to your question, where the, the Bank of Japan, uh, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of China, was essentially easing monetary policy, reducing the reserve requirement ratio to try to stimulate its economy, but doing so with guard so as to avoid the prior excesses of the past where leverage was really the main means of getting economic activity underway. Yeah, no, super, super interesting. For those that are in the audience that want to track more of your work, Greg, how do they find you and what uh, what resources do you recommend? Yeah, um, well, there, there are a number of, of avenues. Um, I mean, you can certainly follow me on Twitter at, at Greg Daco, but you can also follow me uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, I produce a, a regular newsletter uh, that I publish every month on the, the global macro developments and, and what they mean for, for businesses, for business executives, and for, for investors. And we have our EY macro page um, on the, uh, the EY platform. Uh, where we post some of our research and some of our insights, which uh, is is also widely accessible uh, to, uh, to 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 broad audiences. That's a, a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. I've got ten minutes until my next one, so I'm doing a little prep work here. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Gregory here on Twitter. Again, this will be an edited podcast, and hopefully, I'll see you all shortly. Uh, thank you, Gregory. Really you. Appreciate it. Was it. A pleasure. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants 
are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.